Hello, hello, and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? And today, oh my God, I'm over the moon. I'm so so excited for today's special guest, Carrie Bob. Let me tell you about Carrie. This badass, incredible leaders. Today, Carrie is a general partner at Truth Wealth Venture, an early stage VC fund investing woman-led business. Of course, that's improving the human and environmental health. Wow. And today, she's also so passionate about giving back. She teaches at NSF iCore program, also mentors so many startups, providing consulting service on innovation and strategy. Kiri was also a previous CEO for Dream It, the top 10 US startup accelerator and VC fund. She founded Holiday Go Lightning. What a cute name. Okay. A group traveling program for all women. Today, Carrie holds MBA from Harvard, a bachelor degree from the Blue Devil, the Duke. <laughs> and that's how we met. And I just cannot believe today, actually, it's the moment that we actually meet. Uh, when I first met Carrie, oh my gosh, she is such an inspirational, such a strong leader in this world. And I'm just dreaming about sharing her story. So two years later, today <laughs> we are here. I am just so over the moon with that. I'm so excited. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us and welcome to the show. It's a pretty great way to start the day with all this energy. So thank you. <laughs> of course, Carrie. Oh my God, your story is just magical. So with that, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how the journey all began for you? Sure. I mean, I didn't actually intend to end up in venture capital, um, even though I went to business school, et cetera. I was really more interested in the entrepreneur side of things. And so um, spent you know 20 years, mostly not as the CEO of startups, but just in early stage startup companies, because I loved the dynamic mix of what was going on and being able to do different projects every day and have variety. Honestly, I thrive on that. And um, I think I thrive a little bit on pressure too. And that's usually true in startups as well. So um, after Duke, I actually went to Anderson Consulting, which... I think I, it appealed to me because it offered lots of different consulting projects instead of like one thing. Uh, but it's funny because back in that time, what I was literally doing was coding in COBOL on an AS400, which I'm sure dates me. But it was actually, I think, really valuable to start actually doing programming to end up in a career where, you know, for the next 20 years, a lot of what I was doing was in tech. And while I never did the development side of things again, I think I had a good base of understanding it. So I moved from there into product you know, where I was really working with the engineers all the time. And it was helpful, I think, to have some perspective, not only of the customer, but then also the engineers and what how it was going to affect them. And then really, honestly, spent the next 20 years in every single other department, like leading up either marketing or sales or strategy or ops, um, which was, I think, a really good way to see all the different sides of um, the business. And honestly, when I ended up at the accelerator, Dream It!, um, we, it was one of the first accelerators in the market, I think, after Y Combinator and Techstars. I think we might have been third. And now there are, of course, literally thousands around the world. So we were really figuring out the business model of the accelerator. And so, um, you know, I was literally helping the startups in the accelerator, but also running the accelerator, figuring out the business model of that, expanding us to different cities, raising funding to run the accelerator. And then we decided 
really that the business model of the accelerator needed a VC fund because we had all these startups coming in. They all needed access to capital. We had really good insight into which companies were fundable. Um, and so, and we also needed some capital to actually run the programs, et cetera. And so the funding from the accelerator could help with that. And so we really raised a VC fund because that's what the business needed, not because we were like, we want to be venture capitalists. Um, and while I was running that program, we also ran programs focused on minority entrepreneurs. We ran programs focused on ed tech, health tech. Um, we did a program focused on women entrepreneurs where we got funding from the state of Pennsylvania's economic development department. And so here I was doing all these types of things. When I met my business partner, Sarah, we were introduced because when she started thinking about raising a venture fund focused on women, et cetera, she realized she had literally never met another woman in venture capital, even though she had been in venture capital back in the Bay area and gone to like, you know, networking events with law firms for VC there. She was just always the only woman there. So when she started telling people in Austin that she'd never met another woman in VC, they were like, no, 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 there's one, there's one, you have to meet Carrie. So Sarah and I met, um, we had to, we had to like each other because we were the only two women in Austin and VC. And actually for several years thereafter, the only two women general partners in a venture capital fund in Texas, from what we could tell, because we were always being asked to be on all the panels. Um, anyways, we there was so much overlap because Sarah's fund was focused, as you mentioned before, on women-led companies that were improving environmental or human health. It was about a $20 million fund that she wanted to go raise to do seed stage investing. Well, I had at Dream It run a, you know, raised a $20 million fund. We had run programs focused on women. We'd run programs focused on health tech, you know, at the seed stage. And so um, it was really just like too good to be true in terms of alignment. And so at first I was just advising Sarah around, you know, what she was working on because of I had, you know, it was a couple years ahead in terms of, you know, where we were. Um, and then I realized that she was right, that investing in women was the most overlooked, you know, great investment opportunity she'd ever seen. And I thought, you know what, she's on to something and I joined her. So that's how I ended up here at TrueUp. Wow, what a magical journey. And it's just so beautiful that when you are have such a beautiful intention, the whole star just aligns and you met the perfect partner and you start. That's so incredible. And I'm curious, you know, Carol, you mentioned about when you add Dream Ed, you just you run your accelerator and it just happened to, oh, we should raise the fund. You know nothing about the fund at the point, I imagine. How do you able to say, you know what, I'm going to roll on my sleeve, I'm going to just go do it. Do you always well, it wasn't, like that? wasn't just me. So we had, um, there were like, basically three or four partners at DreamIt. And um, none of us had, you know, raised a venture back capital fund before at the time. Although I had gone to, you know, business school at Harvard, I was like, you know, more familiar with VC than probably, you know, the average business person. I certainly mm -hmm. hadn't ever studied it or figured it out. And so honestly, I feel like it is a lot like when startups are doing customer discovery and you go <laughs> have lots of conversations about, you know, the opportunity and you find out what resonates and what doesn't. So there was a lot of, um, things that we just didn't know or did wrong, you know, in our first meeting. Wow. So I can't remember the details, but I think at first we were going to raise a $50 million fund. And then we went to go start talking to potential investors and kind of find out because of the dynamics of how many investors you can have in a fund, how much, how big the checks are that they're likely to write for a first time fund, mm -hmm. how many startups we were going to invest in, et cetera, that really it's pretty hard to raise 50 as your first fund if you aren't going to have, you know, uh, if you're going to be doing seed stage checks, et cetera. And so, you know, triangulate it around and we're like, oh, maybe it's a $20 million fund, for example. Um, and understanding um, who the investors are in first time mm -hmm. funds. So um, 
usually most of the venture capital dollars come from big institutions. So pension funds and foundations and university endowments, et cetera, um, you know, big banking platforms that are aggregating lots of high net worth, you know, dollars and their own banking money. Um, but those big institutions invest in funds that have been around for a while mm-hmm. and have a track record and, you know, history. And mm-hmm. they often also have to write really big checks because they're managing so much money. If they're going to go to the effort of doing the due diligence on something, they've got to be able to put a lot of money to work because they don't have enough time to do lots and lots and lots of little projects with due diligence. And so if you're a small fund raising 20 and you're new, you don't have a track record. Those parties aren't going to invest in you. You have to find the kind of the equivalent of the angel investors of the fund world. And those are generally, you know, extremely high net worth individuals, family offices, maybe sometimes family foundations. Um, And so, you know, when we were raising this funded dream, we didn't know that at first. We were actually going to a lot of other venture capital funds, thinking that they might want to put some money into our accelerator as a way to seed, you know, early stage deals that might come into their funnel. And while that's not out of the question, some VCs funds do that. Sometimes they do it out of their marketing dollars. Sometimes they have the discretion to do that out of their investment dollars. It's not normal because usually their investors, their LPs are choosing them to choose the companies, not choosing them to choose a fund to choose the company. (laughs) It's just too many intermediaries and actually, you know, people taking fees along the way. Um, And so we really had to do the same kind of iterative figuring out product market fit that an entrepreneur does, you know, when they're trying to figure out who their market is and and having lots of conversations uh, and learning and pivoting along the way. Um, So that's how we raised, you know, fund one at Dream It. I'm curious, Carrie, do you never afraid? Because what you you said is like, wow, that's an incredible project. You have no idea. It's your first time, but you just like go as you learn. But do you always... Like well, I would say, okay, so during the dream at time, I think I was less afraid because we had other components of the business model that were working. And, you know, we could have kept doing, you know, some of, I mean, some of the business models of accelerators are challenging, which I think is why some accelerators ebb and flow. But we had funding from different sources to run the programming. And if we just wanted to keep doing the programming, I think we could have found wise ways to do that for at least some period of time. Um, So the fund wasn't a critical dimension, although I think it changed the game and made the business much more interesting. I would say when Sarah and I were raising our fund, first fund, that that had its scary moments. Um, so when we first started going out to raise, um, we had some mentors, you know, um, other successful women in Austin who had kind of been there in the past, who essentially told us it was hard in a way that they were saying, it's hard and you're not going to pull it off kind of it's hard. And of course, I think Sarah and I as like driven, stubborn people were like, uh, no, we will uh, and overcame that. But it wasn't, it's hard, but here's how I'll help you. It's it's hard and you're not going to do it. And so we went off to start doing it. And by the way, raising a venture capital fund really is hard. Like if you look at the data and of course, it's hard to know the denominator because you don't know how many people tried and failed that never got on the radar. But most of the data says at least 50% of people who go to try to raise a first fund fail. And at least 50% of those who do actually raise it, raise about half of what they meant to raise. Um, and, and those, again, those, those numbers are probably not you know, specifically accurate, but the premise is the same. Um, mm-hmm. So it is really hard <laughs> to raise a first-time fund. <laughs> and so when we went, went to start doing it, you know, then we just started realizing, okay, it's hard work, right? So we had to like, get a CRM and learn how to, you, know, you have to run a sales process, essentially, when you're fundraising, which is a completely different set of skills 
than what you use to actually choose investments and like help serve the companies and sit on their boards and, and ride them through and do portfolio construction. And that's what you think being a VC is. But also if you're in a fund where you're the partner who has to raise the fund, you have a completely different set of skills you have to get good at, which is selling. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, you know, got a CRM and learned a process and figured out how to close and like did all those things. And then we thought, oh, it's just hard work. So people are saying it's hard, but it's hard work and we're hard workers. So if we just do the hard work, we'll get there. Um, and then we kept working and working and working and we're like, oh no, it's really hard. <laughs> so it took, um, us about two years and four months to raise fund one. Um, so it's a really wow. long process. And for the first part of it, until you get to a first close, you're not getting paid <laughs> and you don't know that you're going to get paid. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you figure out an amount that is enough to move forward that allows you to say, okay, for the people we've soft circled to date, we're going to mm -hmm. collect their money and get going with, you know, some portion of the money that we want to raise in aggregate. Well, guess what happens then? You, so you, so I can't remember the first close. Let's say we did five of 20. I can't remember exactly. Um, now you've got that money committed. You are obligated <laughs> to invest their money. I mean, there's an option yeah. where you could go back to them and say, Hey, look, I'm going to return your money. We're not going to do it. But it's at that point you've said, Hey, we're hitting go. Now you have a $5 million fund, which doesn't pay you enough to eat, right? It's like you're getting paid something and now you're obligated to run it and start doing those investments, but you don't have no guarantee that you're going to get the rest of it. And now you're sort of stuck in the middle. I think it's like expression is sort of half pregnant. Like you can't really be half pregnant, but like with the fund, that's sort of where you are. And so that's scary. Because as we got closer and closer to, you know, our, kind of our final deadline and really needed to say this is the fund, you just don't know if you're going to get there. Mm -hmm. um, and people will tell you that so many people wait to the deadline. And you know it's true in other parts of life, right, with applications that are due, whether it's for college or when I ran the accelerator, I would run the numbers and like literally like... 70% of the, the applications would come in in the last hour and like you know, 50 in the last minute. So it wasn't even just like in the weeks leading up to the application. It was literally down to the, you know, 11.59 PM. I would get like a huge deluge of applications. Well, same thing happens with investing in a fund. And so when we finally set that final deadline, I sort of like to joke, but it's kind of true that it took us two years and three months to raise like $10 million. And it took us a month to raise the second $10 million because almost all of that money came in in the last month. So you can imagine in the months leading up to that, we were like still only halfway there, still only halfway there. And we thought, oh my gosh, are we even going to get there? And really the final call to action um, wasn't like all of a sudden we met all these new people in the last month. It was all the mining and the continual touch points and the communications and the building up of a big enough pipeline over the course of those prior months that then we were able to close in that last month. But uh, I think if I, even if I were in that position again and I were telling myself that's what's gonna, yeah, that's what could happen, it would still not be a comfortable place to be. <laughs> You don't know. I mean, hopefully that your touch points along the way and the mm -hmm. stuff that you built up was convincing. And so therefore, when you have a big enough pipeline and you hit the close, they're in. But you don't know that until you've made the call. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yes, we were scared at that point. Wow. And at those moments, Gary, what keep you going? When it's so hard, how do you show up second day? You know what? I'm going to do this, even though I don't know if I'm going to ever hit it. You? <laughs> I think some of it is you're already in it, right? So you're committed. And this is one of those things that entrepreneurs have to balance too. It's like, 
what's the difference between persistence and stubbornness, <laughs> you know, like where is the line between, okay, I just, I see a vision that someone else doesn't see yet and I'm right. And, oh, I'm bullheaded and I'm not listening, you know? Um, so I think that was part of it for sure. We were already in it. And while there's this concept of sunk costs and that should apply to your time too, I don't think we were there. Um, you know, I say that, but like, I think we really also did believe the the thesis was resonating with investors, but also Weasel, you know, very much believed in the thesis. So we haven't talked a lot about the data, but um, I reread a couple, well, there's new articles this week on the new data of mm-hmm. investing in women. And um, it continues. So over the course of the last decade, there's been a dramatically more research on this topic. So we were using some of the early research. So we were one of the first people to this approach of investing in women as an underfunded opportunity that has potential for outsized returns. Because when there are more women in senior leadership in companies, whether it's Fortune 500 companies or early stage startups or, you know, successful small businesses, even when there's board leadership, not necessarily active operating roles, the diversity itself (laughs) tends to bring higher performance. And it's dramatic. You know, it's not like 1% 1% importance, you know, some of these data points show, you know, 45% higher returns um, and often using less money. And, you know, we don't know if it's positive in which direction, like, are they using less money because they're scrappier or are they using less money because they have less access to capital, but they're not just performing on par with less capital, right? They're outperforming with less mm-hmm. capital. And, um, you know, there's a lot of data even before that, that shows that just diversity on teams in general makes teams perform better. So not necessarily in the financial performance of companies out, you know, um, perspective, but teams in other kinds of, you know, whether it's sports or orchestras or whatever else. So that was really compelling data. And we knew, you know, it was based on really credible research And we knew, of course, for the potential of implicit bias and frankly, sometimes overt bias that would make it likely that even though this data existed, you know, history and, you know, cultural trends and the types of people who were doing the investing were potentially likely to overlook this. And so therefore it was a missed opportunity. So of course, the other side of the data is that only about 2% of venture dollars go to companies with all women founding teams. And something like 11 to 13% go to companies with a single woman on the executive team. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you know, even though those companies outperform, it's like, okay, there's a huge gap here. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, the data I was looking at yesterday, so it crept up to about 3%. And now in the last year is the worst ever since it's been reported, it's back down to 2%. So it's not getting better. So the opportunity is still there. And um, so I think we had real conviction in that opportunity. We also knew one of the first or the biggest objections we got in the early days of fundraising was, well, maybe the reason only 2% of dollars are going to these teams is because women aren't starting companies. Um, And so we knew that wasn't true from our work, you know, me having been in the accelerator, teaching for the Natural Science Foundation's I-Corps program, more than 30% of those teams have women on the team. Um, There are women start businesses at two times the rate of men. Um, that's an SBA oh. statistics. Now, some of those are, you know, legitimately not venture fundable, right? They could be a corner store or a you know, hair salon or whatever. Um, but they, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurial drive in women. So we knew that the numbers of startups were there in order to, for us to find, I mean, our fund is only funding, fund one, 12 companies. So we knew we could find 12 great companies. And so I think, um, Yes, scared, but also highly convicted that we were really on to a great opportunity that was overlooked. 
And now actually, you know, in the years since, there's a lot more activity happening around funding women, around women investing, you know, as GPs. The other data point I didn't mention was sort of on the triangle is that um, depending on the data source you look at, but it's definitely like less than 10% of the people making investment decisions at VC funds are women. And, uh, it, you know, it's been estimated to be as low as 2%, but, you know, depending on which you use as the denominator, if you're looking at top firms, et cetera, let's say it's, uh, you know, 10% or under. And there is data that shows that when there are more women at a venture capital fund making these investment decisions, that fund is twice as likely to invest in a woman founder and three times as likely to invest in a woman CEO. So there really is a correlation that if we have few women investing, um, that we're going to have fewer women entrepreneurs getting funded. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. Some of it's networks, some of it's pattern matching, some of it's understanding the company. Not, not all women are starting companies focused on women, but the f- companies mm-hmm. focused on women's issues, whether it's femtech or, you know, frankly, aging where w- adult daughters and daughters-in-law are doing most of the caretaking of their seniors, mm-hmm. um, other types of products. There are a lot of times that the male investors don't get the issue, not just if it's makeup or, you know, Mm -hmm. something that's, you know, women focused, but literally things that might be, you know, healthcare or, you know, senior care, et cetera, because they aren't generally the ones feeling the pain. And that maybe shouldn't matter hypothetically, but often it does, right? You've got to resonate with the thesis of the startup and we need diverse people looking at startups to understand diverse problems if we want to solve, you know, all, our community is very diverse. If we're only solving the problems that the, you know, elite white men who have traditionally been in venture capital feel, we're not going to solve the problems and the opportunities for other types of, you know, cultures. It's shocking to still, you know, hear those statistics. And, and I'm curious, you know, Carrie, today you are such a catalyst really speaking out for female-led businesses. And, you know, you have so much passion. I'm curious, you know, outside from statistics, what is your why? Why does it matter? Why does it matter so much to you? <laughs> Ew, that's funny. I don't stop and think about that very often. I mean, I do think as a woman who's been in this sector, I, I, in my early days of my career, I was not aware <laughs> of my gender and and like the how it was underrepresented in the roles mm-hmm. I was in. And interestingly enough, that's true for my partner Sarah as well. So Sarah has a you know undergrad, master's, and a PhD in mechanical engineering. And when she was at both UT and Berkeley, she was one of the, like, literally very few, I think in her mechanical engineering undergrad program at UT, there were two of them. (laughs) And there was a huge, big, you know, academic building. And there was a woman's restroom on floor two. And that was Sarah's, you know, or I don't remember which floor, but like, you know, women's bathroom on floor three was the other woman's. And Sarah left her like curling iron in there because it was her bathroom because literally they were the only two women in the program, but she didn't notice, right? Cause she was like busy studying and like doing her programming. She went off to work in, um, you know, semiconductors and in technical roles, trying to green up the semiconductor industry and was mostly around men because she was in engineering. Then she went into VC, mostly men. Then she and her husband started a brewery, mostly bearded men. She likes to joke. And, um, you know, was kind of blind to it. And I feel like I was the same way. So I definitely remember being at meetings where, you know, I'd be like database meeting for the, you know, tools and fasteners industry, trying to create a standard database for these catalogs that we were building. And it was back in the day when people like wore suits and it was like, you know, men's suits, you see, like they all look the same because they're like black (laughs) or blue. Right. And it's like a dark sea of suits. And I think I might've been the only woman in the room and I'm talking like hundreds of people. 
And I think I, you know, in that case, I was like, oh, weird, you know, but like, I didn't spend my days thinking like I'm, I'm the minority and I'm, you know, I'm oppressed, et cetera. You know, I was just kind of like pursuing my thing. And then when you start to realize and start to see the numbers. So when I was at Dream It, before we ran this program focused on women, we started to look at the cohorts that we would bring in. And, you know, a lot of the early days of the accelerators, it was, you know, a lot of startups in their 20s. You know, the whole you know theme was sort of like Mark Zuckerberg kind of parties and pizza and beer pong and whatever. Like that was sort of like the culture of the accelerator. And uh, there weren't a lot of women. And frankly, it wasn't a super appealing environment for a woman with like beer pong and, you know, hoodies and pizza, et cetera. Especially if you were, let's say, a woman in your 30s who was also taking care of a family and like living a different lifestyle. And so we started to really be conscious that um, the environment not only maybe wasn't appealing to women, but maybe it wasn't even open to women. And that's why we did a program focused on women to both make sure that we were widening the filter and widening our marketing efforts to find women, but also to make sure we were putting programming in place that was appropriate for them, but also helped overcome the biases, if possible, that are happening out in the market. So what skill sets did they need to learn, unfortunately, to compensate for the outside parties, you know, reflection on them, not for their failings in in most cases, um, but helping them navigate a a world that was potentially biased. And so I think um, it wasn't some, you know, specific moment of oppression or anything like that. It was more the accumulation over time of realizing that the dynamics were off. And, uh, you know, especially knowing feeling it's at least myself that I'm very capable and seeing lots of other women around me being capable and to think that you were being hamstrung, you know, by outside forces, like wanting to fix that so that you weren't being held back by that. That's incredible. And I, I love that you've described a room fold up the suit, blue and gray and white. You never want a fitting point code. Do you never felt that pressure? I love that because I think today when I speak to other female entrepreneurs, oftentimes she or her perspective will be, Oh my God, like I want to fit in. Like, do you always so strong about who you are? Are you always confident about that? Actually, I think it's hard to look back and know. I certainly <laughs> am now. Uh, maybe it's again that what's the balance of stubbornness? Um, yeah. The data is really empowering, I will tell you. So, mm. um, this is just an interesting example. So, when we were fundraising, um, a lot of the for, for True Wealth Ventures, a lot of the funding for funds like ours comes from family offices, which are high net worth families that literally have a team of people who just manage their money. It's a great place to be, who are, you know, taking the family's wealth and then making sure to build upon it, et cetera. And um, so, you know, they, they're super high net worth people and that can, you know, they kind of come with the power and the trappings of that and have fancy offices, et cetera. And I remember we did a lot of our fundraising in Texas since we're based here in Austin we went into one of the family offices and there was literally a stuffed alligator and, you know, like guns on the wall and like brown liquor bottles and just like, a, I kind of felt like I was like out of Africa or something, some like, you know, um, hunting male kind of environment. And I felt like when I walked into the office, the guy was like in a cowboy boot with his like boots up on the table. Now that wasn't actually the circumstances, but it was a leaning out body language for sure. And we were here to talk about this, like empowering women and like the capacity for them to be great business leaders. And I just thought, oh, this is just going (laughs) to fall flat right now. And um, it might have, if we were just talking about like, we think women deserve more funding, rah, rah, instead of like, here's a thesis, 
you know, here's the financial opportunity for outperformance based on, you know, hard data from credible sources. And therefore, here's why this is an opportunity. And literally, I watched this person's body language, like sit up, lean in, get engaged over the course of the discussion. And I, that was really empowering um, to the point that, you know, like I still, you know, can really kind of visually see it today. But I think knowing that we were really onto something and that we were often able to educate people that, because in the early days, that data was still not, you know, in every single crunch base and, you know, article and, or a pitch book article and, you know, in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, it was still like the data was just starting to bubble up. And so a lot of times it was new to people and they're like, really, really, you know, <laughs> and um, so now it's more widespread. It doesn't mean everyone's taken action and changed based on the data. So we'll be first to do that and you know, be happy to take advantage of the opportunity. I love that. You're such a catalyst for all the females in the world. So I love that. And, you know, Carrie, you know, today, the long journey you have, you know, come this far, achieved so many successes. I'm curious, you know, what is success definition for you? And with that, do you think you are successful? And what is future? Oh. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was reading some post yesterday about, um, and I can't remember whose quote it was, but, you know, kind of thinking about how the Declaration of Independence has the pursuit of happiness, not actually mm -hmm. you don't have a right to happiness. You have the right to the pursuit of it and that happiness isn't, you know, the ephemeral in a moment you have happiness, but I think the long lasting kind of you know, happiness is feeling like you've achieved, or at least for me, feeling like you've achieved something. Um, and that like you've, you know, actually moved the ball forward on some things. Um, and so I, you know, I know at a certain point in life, people start thinking about like legacy and like, what have they left behind? I'm not there. Uh, so I don't actually have a specific set of things I'm trying to achieve. I just see that there's so, so much opportunity left um, to make change. I mean, one of the things Sarah and I joke about, but we're not joking, but we like joke about putting ourselves out of business. Like it, we would love for there to not have to be a fund that specifically has a focus on gender because that is the smart way ultimately to do investing. Right. And so us doing that as an explicit focus in the early days will hopefully provide the proof points that say, gosh, where we were being short-sighted, that should be part of our thesis from the beginning. And we even thought about, so naming our first fund Gender Matters specifically because we thought, well, it's not just gender diversity that actually adds to outperformance, right? There's ethnic diversity actually does, socioeconomic diversity, all kinds of, when you bring different perspectives into the room, uh, it changes the way decisions get made. It changes the way, you know, things happen. And um, so while we're very focused on gender and probably will be for the foreseeable future, because there's still plenty of work to be done. And actually gender is a sort of more easier thing to, it's been measured. Uh, it is more measurable in a lot of ways than some of the other ways of how to measure. So we, we can see if we're moving the needle. Um, we would love for that to not be, a, a, you know, a, a specific fund thesis anymore. And so that's, you know, one example, we certainly want to see the numbers change. And while a tiny $20 million fund and, you know, our, we're targeting a $30 million fund to, you know, is only going to move the needle so far because we can only invest in so many companies. We're also trying to help participate in this bigger platform with other women um, and men too, who see the thesis um, to change things at a bigger level. But that is going to require um, those institutional investors that I talked about really taking a stance and looking at this differently. Now, not just 
like a principled stance, but a financial opportunity stance, right? If you're a fund to fund or an institution, you're trying to make it a, a out, you know, performing financial return. This is in your best interest to do so. For while I would love to convince them on the merits of the case for women and diversity in general, um, the numbers can also convince them of the case. And it will require some changes in policy in order to get more women fund managers and to get startups investing in women because the current dynamics um, don't do that. I love that. I think you have your legacy planned out already. I'm just preaching right now when I don't think that counts. <laughs> I need to move the needle. It's the effort, right? The intention that really counts. And I'm curious, you know, Carrie, today you have, you know, really moved through so many mountains. You are the catalyst today, really leading the change. I'm curious, what would you say to your 25 years old self? Would you ever see you come this far? What would you tell her? Oh, gosh. Where was I at 25? So in 25, I was working in software development. I was working way too many hours. I definitely pulled a lot of L-minders. Um... You know, it's interesting. So one of the things I do a lot of mentoring meetings um, with, you know, entrepreneurs about their companies, but also people who want to get into entrepreneurship or into VC. And a lot of times they're looking for career advice. And I think a lot of the traditional career advice has you have a plan and know where you're headed and like have the steps to get there. And I've never been that person. Um, in fact, if you asked my mom, like probably the most frustrating assignments when I was literally a little kid, if it would be like in second grade, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Or in like, you know, eighth grade, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I would like agonize over that because I'm actually not a planner. Um, not in that way. And um, I didn't want to have to have a specific path and follow a specific path. I'm much more interested in like seeing the opportunity that arises in the moment and then, you know, the trends and whatever and following that direction. So, you know, to my point, when I started, I didn't intend to be in VC. In fact, I was a little bit kicking and screaming to like committing to be a partner in the fund with Sarah because, oh my gosh, it's like not only a 10 year commitment for fund one, but really you want to do fund two and fund three. And, oh, I'm committing to this thing for like 15 years. I got to really ready to be ready to be in it because in the past I had been able to do something for the period of time that it kept me engaged and, and, you know, sort of driven and excited. And then I could move on to the next thing. Um, what's awesome about this job is that I love it every single day. Um, and to some extent, because it, it, it is about variety and change by the nature of it, you know, you're trying to look for the next innovations and be sure that you're iterating on, you know, where things are headed um, and working with lots of different startups. So I think, you know, the nature of it is that way. Um, but I I'm glad that I didn't feel like I had to follow a certain path. And I remember um, my dad died when I was in my 30s and I had done all the right things. I had gone to Duke, which, by the way, my dad went to. I'd gone to Harvard Business School, which, by the way, my dad went to. I'd worked at, you know, Anderson Consulting and McKinsey and worn pantyhose and been like a businesswoman. And I think I was doing a lot of those things without knowing it. It wasn't some like, you know, I'm trying to please my dad kind of thing, but I think I was. And when he died, I had to stop and think, like, what, what am I doing these things for? Am I doing them for me? Is this who I am? And um, let go of some of the corporate what I'm supposed to do and took a year off. And I just remember agonizing, like, oh, my God, my resume. What am I going to tell people in job interviews when I have this year where, by the way, I, like, you know, traveled around the world and ran a marathon and like, you know, took up yoga and like went to India for a month. And I did all these interesting things that by the way, are interesting in an interview and like bring you perspective. 
Um, and like, it was not like I sat around and watched TV. Like I learned how to run a marathon, but I, I just think about how stressed I was about having to explain this year gap on my resume instead of realizing after it, I don't want to work anywhere that cares about the year gap on my resume, given the context of everything else. And that that was actually then became a defining factor for who I wanted to work with and who I was as opposed like anyone who was going to get stressed about that. It was like, thanks for that filter. Now I know you're not the fit. So I guess um, maybe giving myself a little um, breathing room around trying to achieve, 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 because I, I don't actually know where that <laughs> insane drive came from, but it's not always healthy. Wow, that is incredible, beautiful journey. And thank you for sharing that, Carrie. And, you know, today you have so much insight, you know, from entrepreneurial perspective and the VC world and your own personal journey. I wonder, you know, what would you say to today's uh, woman entrepreneurs or aspiring VC or whatever she has this big goal, she has no idea how to get here, she's not a planner, she just has this desire, but she has no idea how the next step, next year going to pan out. What would you say to her? Well, the great thing is, I think, for a lot of up-and-coming entrepreneurs and, and VCs today is that there's some really great groups that maybe didn't exist before. So I would say make sure you're connecting with peers and mentors and probably not so much trying to like find a super busy CEO and be like, will you mentor me? Because they probably don't have the capacity, but literally finding the groups of women starting funds together or looking to eventually start funds or, you know, women entrepreneurs, because the, um, a lot of the learnings in these environments come from one another because you don't have the boss and the hierarchy and the, you know, official, um, you know, career development plan that happens in a corporate environment. So you have to, and it's way harder to learn lessons like on your own the hard way. So finding peers and then being open about vulnerabilities, what you don't know. One of the you know, challenging things about being in VC is that you're supposed to be, you know, the decider and you're, I mean, the reality is you're, you're in the service business and you're trying to service the entrepreneur and your investors. But I think the outside perspective and some of the perspectives of people in VC is that they're like the powerful people that, you know, tell people what to do and sit on these boards. And um, the reality is, is that there's all kinds of circumstances that you won't have faced before that come up and you've got to figure out how to navigate them. And if you just pretend that you know, <laughs> you're not likely to have the right perspective, but it can be daunting to have to admit that you don't know and figure out who to go ask for help because you want to look like, oh, I've got this figured out. I'm ready to be a VC. And so I think um, realizing that you've got people that you can go ask those questions of and um, create those groups and that trust and transparency, because you're going to, you don't have, and at least in my case with a small new firm, you don't have the senior partners that have been doing this for 20 years who saw that, you know, oh, in 1980 in this one deal we did. So you have to have that externally. So I would say building networks and, you know, building trusted relationships where you can share your vulnerabilities and ask your questions and help each other up on the hard days, et cetera, I think is really critical. So beautiful. My last question for you, Carrie, is today you've done so much incredible things. I wonder what continued to inspire you? What made you happy today? So one of the fun things about investing in um, an impact fund mm -hmm. is that the things that you're doing are not just cool innovations that are, you know, hopefully going to make money as a venture capitalist, but the things that we're doing are all improving human or environmental health. And that's really inspiring <laughs> when you think about the benefits that your companies are offering. Not only you're like, oh God, the company's doing well and they got the sale and uh, they're going to raise another round of funding and it looks like things are up and to the right, but like the impact that they're having in terms of, you know, the impact on public health or the impact on the environment 
Um, you know, we have a company in Maine that's doing seaweed as a food. And not only is it a superfood that's really great for you, but it also is a food that could be a plant-based, you know, food that can be grown in salt water. So it doesn't need land, fertilizer, you know, pesticides. It actually takes carbon and nitrogen out of the water, makes it less acidic and helps bump the seafood out around it. Um, but it's also re-employing lobster fishermen and their off season to become farmers to plant these seaweed. And the waters are warming in Maine and the lobsters are fleeing up to Canada and there may be less lobster fishing to do. And there's all these people who for generations have been doing that on the coast of Maine. We're creating a new economic um, opportunity there and actually helping with like the training and the, you know, learning how to do it. And so that feels really amazing to have this like triangulate. And by the way, the food wins taste awards. It's amazing. I eat it all the time. And so to be, you know, kind of so fulfilling in terms of so many different directions to, to be helping facilitate a company, just picking that one as an example, um, is really pretty great. Oh my God. This is so incredible. And I really want to say thank you, Carrie. You are just such an incredible, incredible Catalyst, not only so passionate about driving the change, but you truly just such a kind-hearted businesswoman and really changing the dynamic, changing the dialogue, changing the conversation. And I just so inspired and so so thank you for today. Join us, showing you beautiful stories. And I know many, many, many more women will be inspired by you. And one day the beautiful future you are dreaming is on its way. So thank you, Wen, for your passion. Have a magical day and thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. We so, so appreciate your time and we can't wait to see you guys next week.